Coming up on Chopper's Politics. What's happening now with the likes of Sunak and Jeremy Hunt taking over in a form of coup, because that's essentially what it is. The establishment have taken back control from the people who asked to take back control from Brussels. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor at The Telegraph, and I'm bringing you a bonus edition for Chopper's Politics listeners. Don't say I don't treat you. Later this week, I'll bring you an episode in reaction to Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement and look set to be a bruising one as the Chancellor battles to balance the books against the headwind of a lot of cross-conservative MPs. A few days ago at The Telegraph, I reported how thousands of people have joined Reform UK, which emerged from the ashes of the Brexit party after the 2019 general election. And these numbers should worry Conservative Central Office, not least because Reform UK does well when people are polled and asking how they might vote at the next general election. I wanted to explore this potential threat to the Tory party ahead of the autumn statement. So I headed to a rather swanky block of flats on the south bank of the River Thames, quite near the House of Parliament, to meet up with Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK. Richard Tice, welcome to Chopper Politics Podcast. Great to be with you, Chris. Great to have you on. We're here in, in your flat. Albert Embankment, looking over the House of Commons, looking over Millbank. Power's in touching distance for you, isn't it? Well. I can see uh, Boris Johnson's progress. office over there. I can see Parliament over there, Big Ben. What is Reform UK? Reform UK, it's a party that believes that this is a great country that is full of so much potential that is being wasted because we are badly managed by politicians, we're badly managed by civil servants, and we're badly governed by institutions such as the cronyism of the House of Lords, the bias of the BBC, the incompetence of some of the quangos. It's an incredible nation, so much potential, and we just feel we can do so much better. But it requires real change, real reform, and we've got to do it now because the longer this incompetence goes on and the longer our public services deteriorate, the longer our economic performance goes downhill, then the harder it is to get it back. And you can tell by the mood of the nation at the moment, people are despairing, people are cross, people are losing hope in so many ways. And I think there's so much potential, but it's being wasted. And there's zero prospect that this Conservative government, under whatever leadership it is this week, I mean, we're just losing touch as to who's running what department when, but they will make no difference, no change whatsoever over the next two years. It was born out of the Brexit party, which you and Nigel Farage ran at the 2019 general election. Why reform? It's because you, th- you think there's something broken in the country. In a sense, that's what people voted for. What you Brexit see is what, too. What you see is what you get. Brexit was about a plea from the country for change, a recognition that something was going badly wrong. And then Boris Johnson was given this huge majority to get Brexit done. And all that has happened is that Brexit has been done very badly so far. It's a great platform of opportunity. We can still make it a huge, wonderful, powerful success. 
and take our rightful place at the top table of the world. But at the moment, it's like everything. It's a wasted opportunity. And it's a failure, you think, of the people it's over there. It's a complete there failure looking of at Parliament. It's, it's Parliament's the, failure. What's happening now with the likes of Sunak and Jeremy Hunt taking over in a form of coup, because that's essentially what it is. The establishment have taken back control from the people who asked to take back control from Brussels. And it's, it's utterly appalling. And that's an opportunity for you, isn't it? So since Liz Truss was removed by MPs, well, resigned under pressure from her own MPs... To- she, was, she was removed by the establishment. Two weeks ago. Since that happened, you've seen a lot of people join your party. We've had almost 5,000 people, most of whom we believe are former Tory members. Or there's no, no proof of that on that narrow point. There's no, there's no, judging by the emails that have come in, the messages, it's pretty clear. But the run rate, that well, what's the normal trend? run rate for joining in two but, weeks? A few hundred, I suppose. Yes, I mean, you know, obviously, like any political party, you get people joining, people leaving, but this is extraordinary. And it's a sign of people's fury and anger because they know that there's been an establishment coup and they know and they can see from everything that's going on. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, he's got as much right to be Chancellor as, frankly, the person running the local McDonald's. He's got no financial experience. He's well, never no, worked he ran, in he ran hot quarters. He's a millionaire, sold his business, made millions for himself, 18 million from memory. But, look, He's, he's, he's got no experience in any Treasury Department whatsoever. He's never spoken about the economy. But he's not an entrepreneur like you, Richard, to be fair to him. Look, anyway, it, the, 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 point is, the point is, he's taken the country down completely the wrong road. Did you establish a hotline to attract former Tory members? <laughs> in a I sense, heard you did. In a sense, we didn't need to. But did you? People were there. I mean, look, there's always a hotline <laughs> and there's always people to answer it. But let's be clear, people are steaming mad. And, it, and of course, it, it's not just Conservative voters. It's people of no political persuasion, but also traditional Labour voters, many of whom are also very angry about what's going on with immigration both the 1.1 million visas that were issued in 2021. We were supposed to take back control of our borders and to be able to create great opportunities for British people. And the opposite's happened. We've actually got, well, we, we've got higher levels of legal immigration. But we, did, we the, don't know what... The, the, we the didn't, illegal immigration that's one half is of, completely we, out of control. We don't know what the net figure is yet. We don't know how many left. We know what the, how many visas are issued. We're waiting to see what the net figure was shortly, aren't we, for the annual figure for 2021. But there's no question there's an issue with the small boats but, on the south coast. Let's be very clear. You can always trust the gross number. The net number is, frankly, a bit of a fudge. Look at the gross number, and it's the highest ever. And it's completely at odds with what the people were promised. And the issue of the boats coming across the English Channel is, I mean, it is utterly appalling. Are you doing what UKIP were doing 10 years ago at the Tory party? Your main focus is attracting disaffected, low-tax conservatives. Look, our main focus is, is attracting people who believe in Britain, who believe that we can make Britain great again, but know that to do that... You've got to be in control of your own country. You've got to know who's coming in. You've got to know who's coming out. You've got to know what they're coming here to do. Are they coming here to legally, lawfully help our economy where we've got skill shortages? That's fantastic. We've always welcomed people like that. But what people do not want is illegal, unfair immigration that we're all having to pay the price for. And it's the greatest 
scandal the country's ever seen. It's way worse than two years ago, let alone 10 years ago. What are your policies on taxation? So on taxation, we're the only party now that stands for cutting taxes. So we would lift the income tax threshold from 12 and a half grand to 20 grand. That means 6 million of the lowest paid are taken out of paying any income tax whatsoever so that work pays. And who, who, and pay, absolutely, who pays for that? Look, I'll come on. The other key policy is that we would take a million small businesses out of paying any corporation tax by lifting the corporation tax threshold to £100,000. And it's very simple how you pay for this. You cut the vast, horrific amount of wasteful government spending. There's only two types of government spending. There's useful government spending and there's wasteful What's examples spending. of that? The aid budget in your mind? There, there are examples everywhere. Wherever you look... Is, is the aid budget I, safe? I, I, that gone? I'm, I'm a businessman. I'll approach it in a different way. Every household and every business is looking at their budgets now and saying, I need to save five quid and a hundred. And you can do that quite straightforwardly. And very often, if you're a business, for example, you actually work better. The government needs to say to every manager of every spending department up and down the country, in every council, every quango, every government department, you're going to save five quid and a hundred without touching frontline services. And if you don't, you're fired. That's what we do in business. And guess what? It works. So you you can save fi- five quid and a hundred. Now, five quid and a hundred for the government is 50 billion quid. And is that the cost of your, yes. your fiddling with corporation tax and income tax? Exactly. Our, our main key tax policies, as well as cutting consumer taxes on things like 20p off fuel tea, for example, cutting VAT by two pence from 20 to 18, and cutting the environmental levies, all of that, you can pay for that by cutting the vast amount of obscene, wasteful government spending. We all see it every day. It drives us bonkers. Are there examples, Richard Tice, of what you're saying? Look, you just have to look around everywhere you look. Just the other day, I was looking, one department spent quarter of a million quid on a wellness app. I mean, give us a break. Come on. A lot of apps make 50 billion, though. Look, look, it's all over the place. It's absolutely everywhere. If I do, right, there's 5.3 million people on out-of-work benefits. That's one in eight of the population. There's no discussion in government about how we help train and support and help those people back. That's one and a half million more than pre-COVID. If you said, right, we're going to get a million people in the next 12 months back into work with help, support, encouragement, that's between 10 and 15 billion quid. That's real money. There's no talk about that. What are your policies on defence? On defence, actually, Ben Wallace has been doing a great job, but we've got to invest more in defence. And we're hearing that Jeremy Hunt... 3% by 2030, 4%, 5%? I think trust was on the right track. You've got to have that ambition to get towards 3%. By 2030, which is a Tory policy. And it's not easy, but you've got to get there. But here's the key thing on defence. You've got to properly spend the money wisely. You've got to procure your equipment to get the best equipment at the right price. We know, talk about wasteful spending... MOD procurement has been a multi-decade scandal. That's got to stop. The other thing about defence is we've got to properly look after, fund and train and help veterans because it's an absolute scandal how they've been treated and just ignored and abandoned after leaving the forces and a proper office for veteran affairs, properly funded. Well, there is one outside. now. There is one now in the cabinet office. It's hopeless. It doesn't need to be in the cabinet office. It's got to be a proper, grown-up, separate department, properly funded. Because guess what? Our veterans have got some of the greatest skills, 
training and experience to offer to the public sector. Veterans should be leading, for example, as chief constables of our police forces, like they used to do 40 or 50 years ago, very often, and in senior leadership positions in the police. Then all of a sudden, you'd get the police doing a proper job properly implementing real law and order. They wouldn't be tolerating any of this nonsense from these absurd idiots locking up roads and junctions and taking over gang trees. It's driving the country mad. Common sense policies, stuff's not rocket science, but if it's not done properly, the country declines and more and more people are despairing and saying, these people have been in charge for 12 years. Reminiscent of UKIP 2015, which Nigel Farage says was his favourite ever manifesto, well thought through manifesto, he would say. It does seem like it's UKIP's greatest hits. Nothing wrong with that, Richard Tice, from saying that's how it sounds. This is, this is reform's greatest hits, and we are dealing with the challenges of today. And we haven't even touched on energy and the madness of net zero, which Westminster is completely obsessed with. We all care about the environment. We all want to reduce emissions. I've got an electric car. I'm putting solar panels on my industrial building. So I'm doing more than my bit. But Westminster's net zero is the wrong bit at the wrong price. And it's making the country net poor. Would you reopen coal mines in Britain? Look, I believe we've got a huge energy treasure under our feet. We've got North Sea oil and gas that we haven't been properly exploring and incentivizing. We've got shale gas that I've been banging on about for a year now. That Sunak campaigned to go for shale gas, subject to local consent, and then he did a U-turn. Basically, he lied during his campaign. He got rid of Boris Johnson because he was a liar, and now Sunak's turned out to be a liar himself. It's appalling. We've got this energy treasure. We've got a century's worth of coal, and yet we're importing five million tonnes of coal every year from places like Australia and from America. So it's adding, adding to our CO2, which is complete madness. Sunak saying we're going to do a deal with the US to import LNG. That means... Liquefied natural gas. Liquefied natural gas. That creates three to four times the CO2 than if we used our own shale gas or if we used our own North Sea gas. So we're sending our jobs and our money overseas. We're creating more CO2. It's literally a lose, lose, lose. We should be using our own coal, using our own gas, using our own oil, because cheap, cost-effective fossil fuels is what makes our manufacturing industry competitive, is what makes our steel industry competitive. And at the moment, it's all going the wrong way. The great thing is, with new technology, for example, with coal, we should be investing in and accelerating the growth in investment in uh, carbon capture storage. That's a great technology. We could be a world leader in it, which means we can use our fossil fuels and save emissions and lead the way in the world. That's how to be net smart about reducing emissions, as opposed to the net stupid net zero that's making us net poorer. Would you fight every seat of the next general Absolutely. election? We've already got 550 candidates, because there was a moment when it looked like there might be an election before Christmas. We're ready to fight. You've got them. We've, we've basically got up. them. We're lined up. Where's the list? Where's we the list? We won't... St- I've got the list. I'm certainly not giving it to you, <laughs> Chris. Me. Of course not. It's, uh, but um, we won't be standing in Northern Ireland, but otherwise we will stand pretty much everywhere. And it's vital that people have the option of voting for reform. And what I'm hearing is people are saying, actually, when you look at it, it's common sense policies. It would help drive the country forward. And we really can make Britain great again. But at the moment, this government, this Conservative Party is making Britain worse. 
When you say you basically got these candidates, you haven't got them all then, all 550. I've got 550, so I need about, yeah. another, I need no, about another 80. Another 80 or so. And look, for, for personal reasons, but you, but there's, there's, stood, always, but there's you, always the odd one that comes and goes. You and Nigel Farage stood down with 317 candidates, didn't you? We, had, no, we, we had to guarantee that Brexit was got over the line, and we had to guarantee that there was no risk of Corbyn and the Lib Dems doing some hideous but you let dirty your supporters deal. down in 19, didn't look, you? we got Brexit over the line. Boris then completely blew it. We will not be standing anyone down in favour of anybody, least of all the Conservative Party, next time round. So we're standing everywhere. We're absolutely resolute about that. We know exactly how we're doing it. We've got donors coming forward. So we will have the funding, we'll have the candidates, we'll have the common sense policies that work for ordinary and British people. And you're not people. targeting some seats where you might win, which is what the argument for well, look, you look, and Farage was in 2019. Obviously, uh, obviously, there are there are every party has specific target seats. How many? How many have you got? Ooh, we'll we'll we'll, ha- we'll have a, a, a really decent 30, number 40? that we'll be going for. And of course, we're heavily focusing in the north, the red wall seats. We want to get rid of all of those current Tory MPs in the red wall seats because those are the seats that know that actually our great British energy treasure under our feet is the source of huge prosperity. They they don't want fracking. They don't want fracking, do they? They do want fracking. If you speak to people, they do want fracking. If you speak to people, they want to reopen coal mines on a sensible basis, use the latest technology so that it's clean. There's no point importing coal from Australia when we've got it in Cumbria, when we've got it in Durham. You can save emissions, you can create British jobs, keep the wealth here, create the wealth here, and make our manufacturing industries, our steel business, competitive. Aren't you, it's wonderful. But by, do, by chipping away at several thousand Conservative voters in 550 seats, aren't you giving power in the north, to your in the north, nemesis, Sir Keir Starmer? In the, in the north, I'm targeting Labour voters as well, because remember, you know, the Labour Party was built in the north on, for example, some of these mining communities... They understand, again, the energy treasure we've never had before in our lifetime. The threat of blackouts and rationing because we've run out of energy. We've never had before people literally not being able to afford to heat their homes. This is all because of the madness of this Westminster's obsession with net zero and whether they're former Labour voters, former Conservative voters. Do you think communities in the North want to reopen mines? I've announced... announced, They want the jobs in the ground? I'm standing in Hartlepool. I was just up there the other day. People are talking about it. People know that it's the source of jobs. They want to work underground, do they? They want want the jobs. Look, people understand that technology's moved on. Open-cast coal mining, there's one being talked about in Durham, for example. Great opportunity. People are doing it all over the world. But that's Why huge scars on the land, Richard Tyus, open-cast mining. Open-cast mining, down it's, in, down, it's there's a huge damage to the... Nonsense. Look at down in Cornwall, for example. A great mining heritage. Who knew that we've got massive reserves of lithium in Cornwall, as elsewhere in the UK? Lithium is essential for electric batteries. So if we've got it here, why wouldn't we mine it here so that we can create more jobs and keep the wealth here? Lithium is part of our energy treasure. There's so much of that that we should be going for. You know, we want, for example, British Vault that's going to hopefully, uh, although there's some serious problems at the moment, build uh, electric car batteries in the north. Why would you import lithium from elsewhere in the world when we've got it here? Because communities near where, where it is may say you can't dig here. We've got communities, our- communities down in Cornwall who are used to mining, they want, as I understand, uh, want to extract that treasure. 
why would you leave the treasure under the floorboards that, that essentially we're all inheriting, that we all own, and import it from elsewhere, creating more CO2? So you, you get this win-win. You create jobs, you save CO2, you create wealth, you keep the money here. We mentioned at the beginning Nigel Farage. What's his involvement now? He's your life president, isn't he? Nigel's the honorary president of the party. Obviously, he's got a very significant media career with GB News. But I speak to Nigel very frequently. Of course, he's passionately enthusiastic about making, making this great country properly managed, properly run. We're all doing our bit in our different ways. And we all just feel appalled by how badly a supposedly conservative government, which actually is not, it's a con-socialist government. We've got two types of socialism now. <laughs> That's for Twitter, not for here. We've got con-socialism and we've got red socialism. And you can't put a paper, literally a cigarette paper, between them. Whether it's on... They all stand for higher taxes, higher wasteful government spending. They're all standing and for... And that's high, what's let you want, in They all want on higher the right. immigration. They don't care about illegal immigration. They're not going to do anything about it. There's only one that, party... That, that isn't true, is it? it is, because no, absolutely Suella true. Braveman does care about immigration. She does care She's about She's not going to do anything about it. We all know that her Prime Minister, her Chancellor... And the left of the Conservative Party will not let her do anything about it. And she's also got a Home Office Department, right, who have got a track record under the previous Home Secretary, Priti Patel, of working against their wishes. Still Farage, is he one of your candidates in your 550 seats? Uh, Nigel would make his own decision as to whether he wants to stand again. Recently, I think he said that, in a sense, I mean, we all know, first past the post is challenging. Nigel, like myself, like Reform, and like other smaller parties, want proportional representation, because that way, every vote counts, every vote matters. That guarantees you 10 or 15 seats from any election. I I think the reality is it guarantees between 60 and 100 seats. And at which point, here's the rub. There's only one party now that doesn't want proportional representation. That's the Conservative Party. And Labour. No, Labour the Party just voted for it at their conference. I think Remember? it was brief they wouldn't do it, though. No, no, it, they voted for it. People like Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, they want, there's only one person who's still slightly sitting on the fence because he's got a long track record of doing that, and that's a kid. Are you involved in the war on woke? Do you hate the word woke in the culture wars? Statues? The, the culture wars is really important because it's, it's what Britain's about. It's about our tradition, it's about our values, it's about our heritage, it's about our freedoms. And there is all this woke stuff that drives us all completely bonkers. And we've got to take it head on all over the place because it's invading our institutions. It's invading the departments of government and it's actually seriously damaging the country and it's involved in wasting a whole load of cash. It's preventing growth. No one's talking in this government about growth. You can't tax your way out of this crisis. Jeremy Hunt, he seems to think that you can tax your way out of this crisis. You can't. You've got to grow your way out of this crisis. If they raise taxes, you will lower growth and you will, you will, you will manage Britain into permanent, relentless decline. Do you see an opportunity for reform because of this... There's opportunity everywhere. Shift. There's absolutely but unusually now, unusually now, because of the concern of cost of living, the large tax increases expected. In, Wherever in the you look, statement. there is there is gross negligence, gross incompetence. Whether it's on the illegal immigration, whether it's on the legal immigration, whether it's on growing the economy by cutting taxes for the lowest paid and small businesses, not by this nonsense of trickle down by cutting taxes for the highest paid. You cut taxes for the lowest paid. That's how you create the growth from the bottom. It's what I call bubble up economics. That works. You're a former conservative. You were in talks to be the London mayor. 
I put my name forward and they, they said, thanks, are you not, but no thanks. Are you not bitter? Are you not bitter? This is no, your revenge I'm, on the party you, you joined once? I just know this is a great country that can do so much better, but it requires reform everywhere. And we do what it says on the tin. We, we've got the common sense policies. That's why people are joining us. People are leaving other parties in droves. Polling at 6%, going north. Going north, that's a YouGov poll if we, recently. If we keep going north and the Tories keep coming south, soon we'll be overtaking them. And what's your message if uh, Rishi Sunak or anyone, any senior Tories are listening to this, this podcast? Uh, my message is, this is a great country, for heaven's sake, start managing it properly. Because at the moment, you are driving the country into relentless decline. It's an absolute tragedy. We've got so much potential. We've got to make Britain great again. And at the moment... They are destroying it. Richard Tice, one final question. When I interviewed Richie Sunak in August, I was so desperate for questions he hadn't answered. <laughs> I asked him the following. You have to be, be, give me a straight answer to this one. Are you ticklish? Am I ticklish in certain places? <laughs> Richard Tice there. And a write-up of that interview will be in the show notes to this episode. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking about whether the plans for a national flagship could be kept afloat after all, or are they hold below the waterline right after this? Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. And we're back. Now, anybody who's been listening to this podcast for a number of years might know there's one subject quite close to my heart. There's been talk in the UK here for a replacement for the Royal Yacht Britannia. I wonder what you thought of that. <laughs> well, I have been on the old Britannica a long, long time ago. Now, Craig is not the only MP calling for a successor to HMY Britannia to be built. But maybe before long we'll see it. We'll see a, a new yacht in the harbour at Auckland. At the weekend you were saying that we should have a new Royal Yacht Britannia. I started by asking him whether he thought a new Royal Yacht. And just finally, I mean, you know, if you're naming any rooms on, on the new flagship suite. Well, I'll take a small badge, badge by in the, in the toilets if you, uh, it's a, a loose seat or something. I mean, it makes me a bit sorry, I have to say, that uh, Liz Trust, in one of her first decisions as Prime Minister, has decided to shelve the idea for a recommissioning of Britannia, quite honestly. But you scrapped it, Peter Mendelssohn, in October 97. No, I, I most certainly did not. Is it therefore time for any national flagship to replace the Royal Yacht Britannia? It's too late. That, that, um, I just don't think it's in the realms of reality uh, to have a royal yacht uh, when you're facing cost of living problem. Perhaps in the future. Dare I say, I think it's a ship that has sailed. 
So imagine my dismay, listeners, to hear just last week that the idea of a new national flagship has been, well, scuppered by Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. So I thought I'd pick up the phone and commiserate with Stephen Watson, an advisor on that programme, before it was brought to a crashing halt just last week in the House of Parliament. Stephen Watson, a member of the National Flagship Task Force, soon to be disbanded, I imagine. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's great to be here. Nice to see you, Chris. Why did we need a national flagship, Stephen? Well, I think it's important as as we think about this project and and obviously the news, very disappointing news that uh, uh, it's not going to go ahead, certainly not now. There was a misunderstanding. This was not ever intended to be a like-for-like replacement of of Britannia or the Royal Yacht as as we knew it in the past. But there is, I think, in the 21st century, as a proud maritime nation, a very compelling and actually quite exciting reason for us to have a wonderful ship demonstrating the best British technology and design that can represent the United Kingdom around the world and to deliver political, diplomatic, trade outcomes for the nation. And I think that was, that was a vision that the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, believed in. He, uh, he wanted to make it a reality. That's really where I got involved. I, I remember back at beginning of 2020, Eddie Lister, you know, reached out and said, look, you know, are there a number of people who might have some expertise that could help bring a vision about. So that, that's, that's really how this journey started and, and the idea of a new ship of state for the 21st century. Do you think that the, the project was damaged by being so closely associated with Boris Johnson? Was that a problem with it? Um, do you know, I, I, I don't think so. I think those that, you know, were, were not fans tried to portray this as somehow a Boris Johnson vanity project. But mm. I think that that misses the point. There was actually a, a really strong business case and strategic argument for creating an asset like this. And we spent a huge amount of time talking to industry and, and British exporters and leaders who said that this is really something that they would welcome. And there was you know, a considerable amount of work that you know, while I was on the programme board that was done across Whitehall that involved Department of Trade, the Foreign Office and others, talking to some of our ambassadors, trade commissioners around the world who said, look, if we had this, there would be massive utility in it. So I think it went beyond. It needed Boris Johnson's initial vision and the way the licence and the encouragement to take a look at it. But I think it, it did move then to, you know, it wasn't just an idea on a whim that there was actually a very strong mm. argument that was put together for the use of, of public money and treasure to actually try and create this thing. And was there actually a business case for it? Was there, was there a document saying that if you spent £250 million on this vessel, then it will return three or four times that over a certain period of time? Well, I, I think having looked at the, these sort of business cases of, of, over the years, it, you know, it's difficult you know, to provide something that accountants in a way could sign off in quite that way. But I, but I think, look at it like this. I mean, the UK, in trade terms, invests a huge amount of money promoting Britain and promoting exports around the world. If, if you look at the world expos, the next one being in Osaka in 2025, 
The UK will invest a considerable amount of money in building and curating the, the British House, the pavilion. And as we started speaking to, to the team looking ahead to 2025, if we had had the national flagship alongside on the waterfront in Osaka, it would rethink how you actually, how you do that. And, you know, figures as big as, you know, 60 to 100 million is spent on a, on a world expo. Well, you know, if you look at that over a 30-year life, actually this asset, this ship, with all of its convening power, would, uh, in my view, have delivered in spades. Do you understand why the plan was sunk, that the Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, said that they would spend the money on a new ship to detect threats to underwater internet cables between the UK and America? I get that, and 100% respect the Secretary of State's decision. It was, you know, after you know, events in, in Ukraine in, in February and then the fiscal situation that the country finds itself in, it is, it, it's difficult to, to justify this. Uh, it, it, we're not replacing something that, you know, is, is, is a must-have. This, this was an aspiration. It was about an ambition. But again, I, you know, although many might say, right, 250 million, and I believe we could have built it for, for less. How much? I, I, I initially, when I first looked at this we, with colleagues, I, I think 150 million would have would have built a very, uh, you know, a, a really very special platform. And one can always say, look, you know, that's the cost of half a hospital or, or whatever it is. But actually, as a maritime nation, looking over the next 30 to 40 years, having something so special, it's, it's almost a UK's Air Force One. You know, it, it, only the United Kingdom and global Britain could have, could have created something like this. And, and look at the designs. We ran uh, a design competition over the last 18 months. And the best British, the really fantastic naval architects, maritime designers, over 19 bids were submitted into this process. And, and as we sat there reviewing them, we were actually, we, at one stage we were a bit worried, would it all be quite conventional and just a sort of rehash of Britannia? Or, or is there going to be something really fitting for the UK in the 21st century? And we were not disappointed. I mean, look at, look at those mm. designs. And the two shortlisted winners, I mean, a, a final one was never, you know, and now won't be appointed, but look at those designs. And, and I pay huge tribute to both the companies who, uh, who brought those forward. Yeah, well, they were by Holder and Holland and Wolf, and we'll put a link to an article I wrote for the paper which illustrates uh, or shows uh, that those two amazing vessels, one of them looked like a, like a James Bond uh, ship, as far as I was concerned, it looked extraordinary, um, uh, Stephen. For £150 million, I mean, is it possible then that this might come back as an idea? Uh, is the idea in port or is it sunk at sea? So I think a, a project like this needs various stars to align. And, uh, you know, Boris Johnson at the beginning of 2020, the stars aligned. I mean, industry saw the need across Whitehall view as, you know, that, that there was value in it. We did uh, right at the beginning go out to industry and see, you know, would, would it be possible for industry maybe to pay the capital cost of building the ship? Uh, but that was right at the beginning of COVID. There was a huge amount of uncertainty. I mean, frankly, it was the wrong time and the wrong place to ask British exporters to pay for it. But I think, you know, even though this disappointing decision this week, there is still value in the concept. And 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 Chris, if I may say, you, you've been a, a cheerleader for this over, over many years. <laughs> and there have been various attempts ever since 
Britannia was decommissioned in 97 to try and bring forward something, uh, something of this nature. I think for now, it's difficult to see how that's going to happen anytime soon. But the need for Britain to be out there around the world doing something distinctive and different and to use the maritime as a convening platform. I mean, in another job of mine, I'm the director of, of the Atlantic Future Forum. We hold for the UK government a summit on one of the aircraft carriers. And we just took HMS Queen Elizabeth into New York Arbor and, and with our foremost ally, the United States, brought you know 500 business leaders and politicians on, onto the aircraft carrier. Why is that such a success? Well, you know, to bring people onto a ship of state it is very special. That was the experience with Britannia in another century, and it's our limited experience with Royal Navy warships today. So I think that I think there's a role. The idea and the utility of this won't go away. How we make it happen, I don't know. If if one of the two companies who bid want to build the ship, industry will come and use it. I'm I'm a hundred percent sure. So it could be the case that one could be funded privately in the future, or even in a decade's time in a different world, we could get a successor to the Royal Yacht Britannia. Chris, I, I would really like to think so. And, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the, the images that were in your paper and you're going to post online. I mean, when you look at those two ships hmm. uh, flying the White Ensign, crewed by the Royal Navy, the greenest ships of their class, new fuels, amazing exhibition spaces. I mean, it, it would be really cool if we could do that. <laughs> and just finally, we were always told by ministers that the royal family didn't want it, didn't want a, new, a replacement to Britannia. Uh, the Netflix series of The Crown, Series 5, comes out this week. Britannia is a key feature of, of, of the story, the plot line, as an idea of faded grandeur for the, for the late Queen. But do, do you think that the royal family, which is our greatest soft power export, of course, in the UK, would buy into a replacement at some point? And were they against the old one? And, and I think here, this is the, the super important distinction. We, we did not set out to try and build a yacht that would do West Nile cruises or, or royal honeymoons. Hmm. We'd never, ever do that. It's a, sh a working ship of state. And in that respect, you know, the King and the Prince of Wales and others at summits or, or Commonwealth heads of government summits and, and so forth or big trade events, they would use this working platform. But, it, but it's not a yacht. It's a ship of state. Well, Stephen Watson, thank you so much for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Stephen Watson there. And thanks to all my guests this week on this bonus episode of Chopper's Politics. Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK, and Stephen Watson, an advisor to the National Flagship Programme. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. To share your thoughts on what our guests had to say, please do email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or you can tweet me, we're at chopperspodcast. And for more Westminster insights, do check out my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode, along with a link to my article that featured the Royal Yacht Designs that Stephen mentioned, and of course the article, the interview I should say, with Richard Tice. And I'll be back on Thursday evening to give you immediate reaction to Jeremy Hunt's 
bruising autumn statement with guests from The Telegraph and further afield. Until then, please do buy a copy, when you can, of The Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!